0: Well, good morning, everyone, good morning. And, a and a merry Christmas to you. It's so good to be with you all this morning on this, the Lord's Day, as we get to celebrate the birth of our Lord. Great time for us to be together, and we're so glad that we can. <clears throat> okay. Now, the world doesn't usually know when those who will change the world come into it. Let's take the year 1809. The international scene was in dire straits. Napoleon was sweeping across the streets of Austria, and blood was flowing in the streets. Nobody cared then about the birth of babies, especially those that would have been born so far away from the front lines of war. But without knowing it, and with the help of looking back, we see that the world was overlooking some incredibly significant births that, were, that happened that year. William Gladstone was born in 1809. He was destined to become one of England's finest statesmen and was prime minister several times in his life. That same year, Alfred Tennyson was born to an obscure minister and his wife. And this child would grow up to one day greatly affect the literature world in a marked manner and would be known as Lord Alfred Tennyson. In America, Oliver Wendell Holmes was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts and became a famous judge and jurist one day. Not far from where he was born, Edgar Allan Poe began his eventful but unfortunately tragic life. In that very same year, a physician named Darwin and his wife named their child Charles Robert and the world would soon learn about the teachings and thoughts of Charles Darwin and I dare say not for the better. That same year produced the cries of a newborn child born in the rugged log cabins of Hardin County, Kentucky. The baby's name, Abraham Lincoln, the man who would change the course of the history of the United States. The world does not often know when those who will change the world are born into it, but history is often changed by those who come in the cradle. All of those births happened in 1809, but who pays attention to the births of babies? If there had been television news in that day, I'm sure the screaming headlines of CNN would have been the destiny of the world is being shaped on the Austrian battlefield today. But in fact, history was being shaped in far off cradles of Austria, or of America and England, though the world was unaware. During the first century, during the time of the Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus was the great and mighty ruler. And it was thought that perhaps he is the one, whatever happens to him, would be the most important thing that would happen in history. But the really big news, the most important news from the standpoint of history, from the standpoint of eternity, most importantly from the standpoint of Almighty God, was what was happening in an animal trough in the backwoods of a little town called Bethlehem. When the world talked of taxation and occupation, a young Jewish woman cradled the biggest news of all the birth of the Savior of the world. I take some of those thoughts from a meditation given by Charles Swindoll. We're so glad that you joined us this morning for this celebration of Christmas on this, the Lord's Day. We remember that Jesus Christ is not only the hope of the world, he's the focal point of human history. The one who alone can give the human heart all that it really desires, love and peace and joy and hope and assurance and life itself. And here we recognize that God is in control and worthy of all honor and all of our dignity and respect. And so in honor of him and of his majesty, and the authority of his word, I invite you to stand once again as I read the passage that we will briefly look at this morning. And I hope that as we read it, it will fall upon your ears in a new and fresh manner as we contemplate the majesty of the King of Kings becoming a baby. I'm reading this morning from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. And the beautiful and holy word of God says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Father, keep us from overlooking a passage that is so full of wonder and eternal truth simply because it's familiar to us. Father, we pray that you'd give us ears to hear it as if it were for the first time and hearts that would be stirred to rejoice at the wonder of what we're considering this morning that God became man. Thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you for guiding us by your spirit. Thank you for providing this word. Now, would you give its understanding as you teach us in Jesus' name? Amen. I invite you to be seated. Good morning to those of you joining us online. Merry Christmas. It's good to be with you this morning, and we look forward to that time when we can all gather in this place and worship the Lord together. In your sermon outline, you can follow along as we move through our passage this morning we get to our first point, which is Jesus is the Son. Now, even though I have just read from verses 18 to 25, we're really going to consider verses 21 to 23 this morning. The first thing we see is that Jesus is the Son. Joseph, a carpenter, a righteous man, didn't know what to do. He He was a godly man, but now he finds out that his betrothed is pregnant. And he wants to avoid a scandal and protect both his reputation And that of Mary. So he plans on quietly ending their relationship. And while he's doing that, before he could, an angel was sent by God Almighty and appears to him and tells him of God's plan for this situation and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Joseph, there may be some misunderstandings, there may be some social inconvenience. You may experience even ridicule, but Joseph, do not fear. Take her home to be your wife. This child to be born will be special. It will have a special impact on the world. He is the son, first of all, being the son of Mary. We're told in the text that she will bear a son. And notice that it's the angel of the Lord who speaks, and he's speaking with the authority of God, and when God speaks, things happen. We know at the beginning, God spoke, and all of creation exploded into being with the billions of galaxies that are there. And with the James Webb Space Telescope that we now have, we see truly in a deeper way than we ever have before how wondrous the universe is, the billions upon billions of stars and the order and the intricacy far beyond what we knew even just 10 years ago. And God with a word said, be, and it exploded into existence. When God speaks, he is the Lord, the giver of life. And if he's able to speak and all of creation comes into being, well, it's not that difficult for him to intervene in the life of Mary involving the birth of a son. He can create life in a womb just like he can create life with a word. And the miracle is not that God can bring about a virgin birth. The wonder is that he did. This is amazing, and it was to draw attention to him, draw attention to the one that would be born of Mary, whom we know as the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus who was and is and will be for all time fully divine. There was never a time when the second person of the Trinity did not exist. There was never a time when Jesus did not exist. He has eternally been the Son of God. But this Son would become a man. And he would become a man and be introduced to humanity through the ordinary means of human pregnancy. This son, Mary's son, would be born into a human home, would have family relationships, human friends, and in every way have a fully human experience. He would learn from Mary how to walk, how to eat, how to dress himself, how to do chores. He would learn to play games with his friends. He would learn to get along with his brothers and sisters he learned to read and to write and how to study the scriptures from the religious teachers. He was in every way fully human. And until that time, in this, in this point in the story, Joseph and Mary had been betrothed. That was the second step in the marriage process among Jews. They would be considered legally married, but not yet living together, having no marital intimacy. And so when this event happens, it would be scandalous in the eyes of many And that's why the angel appeared and said, Joseph, take this woman home to be your wife. And so Joseph heard the voice of the Lord. And in verse 24, we are told he took his wife. That means he took her into his home. He would now have legal protection over her. He would provide security and safety, would defend her and provide for her and protect her. And then once Mary would give birth to this child, they would have a, a normal married life together. So Jesus came and was born into a normal and full human experience so that he could sympathize with us in our humanity, so that he could be the redeemer of humanity. He was the son of Mary, but he was also the son of Joseph. Now, of course, Jesus had no earthly father involved in his conception, but he would need an earthly father to raise him to have legal protection in the society in which he lived. It was prophesied that the Messiah would come through the house of David. And David's ultimate son would be the one who would bring in the kingdom of heaven and have an eternal kingdom. And you can read about it in Second Samuel chapter 7. But let me just read a portion of it. I will raise up your offspring, the Lord says to David, after you, who shall come from your own body. And I will establish a kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And this promise was given to King David a thousand years before it was fulfilled in Jesus being born in Bethlehem. God is in control of history. History is ultimately his story. And he has a good story to tell. And he has a good story that he will finish. And we who are in Christ have the wondrous joy of knowing That will be part of how it all culminates and be with him forever. But for a thousand years, the Jews looked for the Messiah, the one who would be the son of David. And now here he was. This is earth shaking. It's history transforming in its importance. And notice the instruction that the angel had given to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus. And we can talk about the meaning of his name. Jesus means Yahweh saves, but that's not what we want to focus on at this particular moment. This was a command from the Lord of what Joseph was to do. And in Jewish custom and in Jewish mindset, to give something or someone a name was a demonstration of authority over that person or over that thing. Think of the creation account where God brought the animals before Adam and would call them whatever Adam Decided to call them because Adam was to have dominion over these things. And here Joseph was to give the name to Jesus. And so what did Joseph do? In verse 25, and he called his name Jesus. By Joseph giving this son his name, this was a legal identification of this son as his own. A form of adoption where he would say, I will take care of this son. It is my son and I will give him protection. I will... Give him provision, I will watch over him. And how that came to pass was that Joseph was a descendant of David. And God had promised that through the descendants of David would come a son. And God knew how he would bring it all together in this one who is not only the son of Mary, but who is the son of Joseph. But ultimately, he's the son of God. As the angel says, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. We've already said that it is the Lord that creates all things. He creates all things through the power of his word and through the Holy Spirit of God. For even in the early creation account, the Holy Spirit was hovering over creation, bringing order and bringing direction. That's why we call him the Lord, the giver of life. And if he is the Lord, the giver of life, and Jesus is referred to as the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, they have no trouble bringing about a virginal conception. They just simply tell us how it would happen. For we read in Luke's account, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Just as the Spirit hovered over creation at the beginning, the Holy Spirit hovered over Mary and created life, because he's is the Lord, the giver of life. And the action of how this happened was to fulfill what God had promised before. So if a thousand years beforehand he had said that the Messiah would be the son of David, 700 years beforehand he'd said that Messiah would be born through a virgin. And so we are told that all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. This is the prophet Isaiah. Behold the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel." which means God with us. Im, he, ma, with, nu, us, el, the word for God. E, ma, God with us. These promises come not only from Isaiah chapter 7, but also Isaiah chapter 9. And, and then we have a description in Isaiah 11 of what this Messiah would be like. Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus, as the Son of Man, came to fulfill the perfect righteousness that the law and the prophets required. He not only lived a life without sin, he lived a life of perfect righteousness. And we need both if we are to be saved. We need not only to have our sins atoned for and our sins forgiven, but we need to have perfect righteousness accredited to our account. It's not enough just that our sins would be forgiven. That would reset the marker at zero. We need perfect righteousness accredited to our account and that's what Jesus did. He lived the perfect life of not only never sinning and atoning for our sin but fulfilling all righteousness and then at the moment that we believe that righteousness is accredited to our account and God looks at us in the sun and looking at us through the sunglasses sees that we are righteous and pure and calls us his children. And so we Recognize them as we've sung and it's been hinted at in some of the songs already this morning. We recognize that what we celebrate at Christmas cannot be set separated from what we celebrate at Easter. We need to see Bethlehem in light of Calvary, the birth of Christ in light of his life and death. He is the Son, the Son of Mary, the Son of Joseph, ultimately the Son of God, and he came to do something, which is our next point. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus did not come simply to be a good example to follow. He did not come just to be a good teacher. He did not come just to love us. No. He combined all of these things together and more in order to be the Savior of his people, of everyone who would believe on him as Lord and Savior. That's why the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus. Yahweh saves For he will save his people from their sins. Notice it is a promise. It's an action verb. He will do it. He will bring salvation. And that was all what his life was about as he did. Fulfilling all that would be needed to be the Savior. But what does the word mean? The meaning of salvation. At its basic level all throughout the scriptures, the word salvation can mean to set free. It can mean to rescue Or to liberate. So there are different forms of salvation. To be saved from debt. To be saved from danger. To be saved from sin. When we say that Jesus sets us free. Or that he rescues us. Or that he liberates us. These are word pictures that all point to the same thing. Jesus saves. Jesus, of course, is is the same name as the prophet of old. Joshua, they have the same name and they have the same meaning. Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. He is as he does. He is the Savior. It's in his very name. So we ask the question then, why do we need to be saved? From what do we need to be saved? And so we get to the next point in the need of salvation. For he will save his people from their sins. Not all would be ready to accept a virgin birth. They were not ready in those days. And even today, the idea is widely mocked. There are many who are willing to accept the teachings of Jesus, the example of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, but just can't get around the idea of a virginal conception and birth. They attribute it to the legendary beliefs of a primitive people. But we've already seen that To Mary and Joseph, it was clear to them how children came about. And that's why there was scandal involved in the situation. That's why Mary said, how can this be? I kind of know what happens. And that didn't happen. And Joseph puts her away because he's expected or he thinks she's been acting in an untoward way. And so the Spirit of God and the angels of God intervened to make it clear exactly how this happened as a miracle of God. So, while he would be accused of this during his life, in John chapter 8, they said his opponents called him the son of infidelity. We did not come about through infidelity, they said to Jesus. But Jesus knew that wasn't the case. Mary knew that wasn't the case. Joseph knew that wasn't the case. More importantly, God knew that wasn't the case. Jesus did not come about as a result of sin. He came in order to save sinners from their sins. He came to be the great deliverer. And why is it that we need that? Why is our greatest need forgiveness of our sins? Because we have to speak into a culture that believes something that is false. And that is we are not basically good, though the culture says, oh, we're just basically good. We talk about human potential. We talk about goodness of people we listen to false ideas that talk about who we are but the bible says something very different the bible says that each person that enters into this world has an attitude of rebellion and a disposition of god against god in fact in his very nature the bible says man cannot please god nor does he desire to do so the scriptures are clear it says in in romans chapter 3 none is righteous That's a universal. None. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Makes it really clear. In our basic nature, we are not basically good. So against the claim that we're really not that bad, after all, everybody makes some mistakes, the Bible says we're actually really not that good. And if we get that wrong, my friends, we miss the point of Christmas. And we miss the point of Christmas to our eternal risk and peril. Because, you see, our being good enough will never be good enough before a holy God. Because he requires perfection. Without holiness, without perfection, no one will see God. God does not grade on a curve. Because in our minds, we look out and we analyze the people around us and we develop our own checklist and we say, oh, I'm doing a pretty good job of keeping my own checklist. I pass the grade. But that bloke next to me, God doesn't grade on a curve. The only standard he has is his own perfection. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need him not only to pay the penalty for our sins, but to attribute it to us his perfect righteousness. And that is the only sacrifice, that is the only standard that God will accept. In the, early 18, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a man named Reverend D.M. Stearns who was an American itinerant preacher. Traveling around different states and one day he was in Philadelphia preaching the gospel. And at the close of the service, a stranger came up to him and said, I I don't like the way you spoke about the cross. I think instead of emphasizing the death of Jesus, it would be better to preach the teacher Jesus, the example Jesus. Reverend Stearns replied, Well, if I presented Christ to you in that way, would you follow him? Oh, I certainly would, said the stranger. All right then, said Reverend Stearns. Let's take the first step. Jesus did no sin. Can you claim that for yourself? And the man looked confused and he said, Why no, I, I acknowledge that I do sin. And Reverend Stearns rightly replied, Then your greatest need is to have a Savior, not an example. And that is our greatest need. Not an example, though we need one to follow, not a teacher, though we need to listen to him. We need a savior who will save his people from their sins. And so the word sin is used here in Matthew 121, and it's interesting. Uh, If you're with us regularly, you know that we're going through the Gospel of Matthew and we we hope to continue in, in, in the new year. The word sin is actually only used a handful of times in the Gospel of Matthew, the actual word that is used here. But this is the reason for which Jesus came. He will save his people from their sins. And all this is to point us toward what God had already promised several hundred years beforehand through the prophet Isaiah. For what did what did the prophet say? And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. I'm, I'm quoting from Jeremiah 31. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sins no more. This is the promise of the new covenant. And if you go to... Hebrews chapter 8, the writer quotes this passage to show that the new covenant has overtaken and fulfilled the old covenant. And the two things promised in the new covenant were that we would know God and that our sins would be forgiven. And Jesus said that this is eternal life. That they know you, the one true God, in a personal, intimate, eternal way. And the one that you have sent, Jesus Christ your Son. And he came to save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ came to be the God-man who would save sinners. As a man, he lived out that perfect righteousness required by God. As the God-man, he stands in the gap between God and men, able to bring reconciliation between them. He was the perfect sin sacrifice, the only one that God would accept. And so Paul, as he summarizes the gospel in 2 Corinthians, says, For our sake, he... And I just put in parenthesis to know who the he is here. God the Father made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And Peter reflects on that same meaning and says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. In Christ we see the perfect obedience and the perfect sinlessness that God requires for salvation. But this is a gift that cannot be demanded, it cannot be required, it cannot be worked for, it cannot be earned, it is given only by the merciful grace of God, received only by repentant faith in the promise of God. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. The only way to be saved from our sins, the only way to experience the reason for which Jesus came is by grace through faith and recognition that it's all of God and nothing of our own human effort. As Charles Spurgeon says, if we can put one stitch into the garment of our salvation, we will ruin the whole thing. That garment of salvation, that robe of righteousness is completely Christ's that is given to us by faith, and then all of the glory goes to him. Have you done that? Have you cried out to him and said, Oh God, nothing in my hands I bring, but only to thy cross I cling. And cry out to him as the bread of life to feed you and give you eternal life. Jesus, the one who said, follow me. And he will lead you on the path to eternal life. I pray that today, if you know not Christ, you will not put your head to the pillow tonight without crying out to him and saying, oh God, save a sinner like me. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Savior. Lastly, Jesus is God with us. And they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. I've already broken down the word for you. Im, he, ma, with, nu, us, el, a word for God, the name for God, Immanuel, God with us. So that means two things at least. One, it means that Jesus communicates God to us. He is the one who is not only God with us, he came and dwelt among us. And the image that is used in John chapter 1 and verse 14 where it came and he said he became flesh and dwelt among us. It's, it's he tabernacled with us. He pitched his tent in our camp. He came to live with us and to live among us, to show us what God is like. He came to save us for he knew that we needed to be saved and from what we needed to be saved so that we would not suffer the eternal consequences of our sin and rebellion. So Emmanuel was not actually his name that he used in his daily life as far as we know, but it indicates who he was and what he did, bringing God's presence to man. Matthew wants us to know the importance of the one who was born and this one who is with us. And not only is he with us at his birth, he will be with us every day until he carries out to completion his plan. So today... If you've known Christ for 30 years, he is still God with you. And if you walk another 30 years with him, he will every day be God with you. And then at the end of your days, he will be God with you. And then he'll bring you into his eternal presence where, of course, he will be God with you forever. That is the wondrous message of Christmas. As one of the early church fathers... A man named Gregory of Nazianzus said he reflected on this meaning of Emmanuel, God with us. What does it mean? And he said this. It's a little bit lengthy quote, but just stick with me here. He began, Jesus began his ministry by being hungry, yet he is the bread of life. Jesus ended his earthly ministry by being thirsty, yet he is the living water. Jesus was weary, yet he is our rest. Jesus paid tribute, yet he is our king. Jesus was accused of having a demon, yet he cast out demons. Jesus wept, yet he wipes away our tears. He was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed the world. He was brought as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. He died, yet by his death, he destroyed the power of death. Jesus, as Emmanuel, communicates God to us, but also communicates us to God as the God-man. It's not enough just to know about God. It's not enough to know things about him. We need to know him. But how can we do this as sinners if we're not able to please God in any way? And the Gospel of John provides the answer. For the only God who is at the Father's side, speaking of Jesus, he has made him known to us. It is only through the intermediary that God sends to us that we're able to know and connect with God, to go through Him to God, because He communicates us to God, even as He communicates God to us. And so that's summarized then, as the Apostle Paul says, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. We can only experience salvation that God offers through the provision of Jesus Christ, who came. To save his people from their sins. Do you know him this morning? As the God man, he alone can save. He alone is the savior. He alone is the judge. He alone paid the price. He alone is able to not only forgive us, but he is also the one who will punish those who refuse to believe in him. Pastor Warren Wearsby tells the story of a frontier town where a, a horse was running away with a wagon carrying a small boy. And seeing the child in danger, the young man risked his life and ran after and caught up to the the horse and the carriage and stopped it and saved the child who was inside. But that child grew up to be a lawless man. And one day he stood before a judge to be sentenced for his serious crimes. And all at once he recognized the judge as the man who years before had risked his life to save his. And so he pled for mercy on the basis of that experience. But the word from the judge silenced his plea. Young man, on that day I was your savior, but today I am your judge, and I must sentence you to be hanged. One day Jesus Christ at the throne of judgment will say to all rebellious sinners, during that long day of grace I would be your savior. And I would have forgiven you, but today I am your judge. Depart from me, you wicked, into the everlasting fire. Martin Luther, the great reformer who God used to bring the church back to the gospel, said it like this. The life of Christianity consists of possessive pronouns. It is one thing to say Christ is a savior. It is quite another to say Christ is My Savior. And his comment on this was shocking. He said, you know, the devil can say the first one. But only the true Christian can say the second one. It's not enough to have feelings about Jesus. It's not enough to know the right things about Jesus. It's not enough to say that Jesus is a man of history. We must repent and believe the gospel and cry out to God to have mercy upon us. So that we might be forgiven through Jesus Christ who came to save his people from their sins. My friends, if today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that what's happened in a cave and in an animal trough led to the cross of Calvary and the cave in which our Savior was laid. And we thank you that in his birth and in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, he did it all. So that, Father, we would have the joy of being your children forever. And we do not take that lightly, Father. I pray that that wondrous grace would set our hearts free to serve you well, to love you deeply, to cherish your truth, and to proclaim it to those around us. So that truly, Christmas, Christ. Mass would be the day on which we just proclaim with shouts of joy, today in the city of David is born unto you a Savior who is Christ the Lord, the one who came to save his people from their sins. O Father, may eternal praise from our lips and our lives rise up to you and to your Son as we pray in his holy name.
1: Amen. Christmas is a time where we recognize we are sinners. Christ sent Christ is the Savior, and it's a day of celebration. Uh, But they're going to be celebrating in heaven for all of eternity. We might as well start a.